Dr. Dennis McNamara is one of the premier thought leaders in the renewal of Catholic Church architecture in America. He has a unique ability to synthesize church architecture, liturgy, and theology to make it accessible to all. Dennis is Associate Director and Faculty Member at the Liturgical Institute of the University of St. Mary of the Lake. He holds a BA in the History of Art from Yale University and a PhD in Architectural History from the University of Virginia. Dr. McNamara is a speaker and author of numerous articles and books, including Catholic Church Architecture and The Spirit of the Liturgy, which is referenced several times in this episode. In addition, Dennis is featured in the popular podcast, The Liturgy Guys. Join Chris and Rafa as they talk with Dennis about architecture, theology, liturgy, and everything in between. What role does liturgy play in the architecture of a church? Should church architecture respond to modern culture? What does it mean to create something new? Welcome to the Beauty Ever New podcast. The word new means something different theologically than it does chronologically. Absolutely. Right? So new means it's not yesterday and it's today. It's this moment. It's recent. Mm-hmm. But when you talk about biblical making new, we're actually talking about making old in the sense that Adam and Eve in the garden were in a right quality of existence, a state of being, and they lost it you know, in the fall. I mean, we've lived in the process of getting back to that the whole time, and in fact, beyond that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when Christ makes all things new, it's not so much like, hey, we're different from yesterday, except to the degree that we're more like we once were in the Garden of Eden right. and how we will be in the future in the terms of the, the glory of the eschaton, the glory of heaven when, when the Lord is restored. And so I think chronology is helpful when you talk about human sense of history. Um, and so style discussions are often chronological. First it was this, then it was that, and history progresses, and therefore looking backward is considered bad. Yeah. But what we're talking about is excellence in the state of being and the restoration to the glory that God wants us to have, to be more like him. Right. And so being made new in that sense is not being made different from yesterday, except to the degree if you're different from yesterday is more like what you were in the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Right. So you can actually go backward by going forward, right? You can become less holy which is not being made new, even though you're different today than you were yesterday. And sure. so to keep that distinction in hand, I think is really important. Yeah, no, sure. And that, and I think that's, uh, that's a good distinction that describes a lot of uh, changes to the liturgy as of, as of late, where if, we're, if you're, if you're going to change it, you're going to try and change it so that it's more like what it was before. Um, in a sense, you're talking about like a theological newness that's actually chronologically old. Um, right. It should nice be changed so that it's better, right? Right, exactly. Better reveals an yeah. incounterable mystery of God. Now, if that was done well 100 years ago and we're worse, then we should do what they did 100 years ago. Yeah. yeah However, exactly. if it was worse 100 years ago, then we, we should yeah. make it new to make it better, right? So so time, chronology, in this sense, is wrapped up with what's better, what's good, how does God reveal himself, how do we encounter him? Yeah. And sometimes you go to history to find the best way anyone's ever done that. Sure. Sometimes yeah. you look back at history and say, man, they forgot that stuff, and we've got to do it better than they did. And so... There is such a thing as progress, but it's always progress in relation to the good and the true. Yeah, and you have to know what you're progressing towards or else it's just movement. Yep, right. All right, so on that same line, um, so in your book you talk about, I would say from what what I was looking at, the meta project of the the book is to kind of establish an architectural theology or a theology of architecture. 
And in the book, you talk about how two foundational events in understanding architectural theology is the incarnation and the transfiguration. So could you kind of explain for our listeners why those two events are important in trying to understand the role of architecture and its importance? Sure, you know, and that's the theology I picked up from studying Eastern icons. So, you know, the, in the Eastern church, they have all these problems over the centuries about whether they can represent Christ in an icon in a visual form because of the Old Testament uh, resistance against making graven images or mm. making idols. And so the, they had to work out this problem. How can we make an image of God who is unknowable and ineffable, as the word is? So they, they developed this theology that God made himself knowable in matter by the incarnation. He took on the stuff we're made of and um, showed up in our world and was visible to human eyes and audible to human ears. And so if God did it, it must be okay, right? God yeah. decided to be sure. knowable yeah, yeah. in matter. Now, that's okay when you think about the fishermen, you know, at the side of the Sea of Galilee or whatever, or the carpenter. But then when you say, okay, he's God, he's not just human, how can we show God's glory mm -hmm. in matter? And can matter actually bear the weight of revealing God's glory? And this is a very important theological thing. Because if it can't, and you make it look like it can, then you're making an idol, right? Here's this heavenly thing that's not heavenly. And so the moment that they show that matter can reveal God's glory is the transfiguration. So Christ's on Mount Tabor, and mm -hmm. boom, he becomes dazzlingly white, and even his clothes become dazzlingly white and lit up. So that means matter can reveal God, because Christ said, he who sees me sees the Father. Mm -hmm. But then matter can also reveal the glory of God. So that's the resurrected Christ, but by anticipation on Mount Tabor. So this is the foundational theology for why we can show heavenly things in their heavenly condition as some kind of participation in that heavenly future. And if you don't buy that and you just say, well, matter is fundamentally bad and corrupted, all we can do is know that we're bound to ugliness, then you develop a theology of ugliness. And that is, in my mind, the wrong way to go. And there were yeah. some architects who were who were convinced of that position and they made churches that were bland, dull, mechanical. And you can see why modernist architects liked it, right? Because it was industrial, it was concrete, right. it was low materials. Yeah. And that tied in with that Protestant theology, a certain Protestant theology that matter is not able to reveal God. And so industrial was the best way to be true to our sure. as opposed to participation in the past and the future. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think um, it's amazing how the incarnation was, was such a kind of a cosmic game changer. You know, it seems that when you, when you look back at history, the incarnation happens and the church is born and then the church, as it begins to try to unravel the mystery of Christ, found these incredible ways to create art and architecture that embodied the, well, the, the nature of the, of the incarnation. You know? So you had, for example, the development of Gregorian chant, which was like, there was nothing like it before, or, or polyphony, or you know, if you want to look at just its architecture, Gothic architecture. And, so there was always associated with the understanding of the incarnation, this explosion of creativity that came along with the worldview that God became man, you know, that as a result of Christ becoming man, all of a sudden this creativity was unleashed that perhaps we didn't have before. And so following up on kind of what we were talking about earlier, um, I was reading Pope Benedict's uh, infancy narrative book. And, and he, at the end of the book, he talks about how Jesus, when he was found in the temple, um, one thing that that story exemplifies is how Jesus, on the one hand, had a radical faithfulness to the law and the prophets, so he was continuing everything that came before, 
but at the same time, there was an equal radical newness to him. And, and obviously, now with the nuance of kind of what you were saying, that newness is, is right relationship to God, um, you know, we can kind of begin to understand that. But what role is there, or is there a role in, I mean, I don't know what to call it, because it's not novelty for the sake of novelty or innovation for the sake of innovation, but it seems like throughout the church's history, there has been a relationship between um, these brand new forms of expression yeah, and yeah. the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Is there still a role for that in, in today's world? Or, or are, we, are we better off just kind of following tradition? Well, there's two. Well, it, it's a subtle and nuanced thing, right? Tradition literally means handed on, the tradition. Yeah, right. handed yeah, on yeah, to yeah. you from the previous generation. So the apostles got it from Christ, Christ then went to the Father and said, hey guys, it's on you now, right? I'll send the Holy Spirit to help you, but you are the action of Christ now on earth. This is what the mystical body of the church is. And so you have to learn, understand, and know, and then give it to the next generation so that they can give it to the next generation, so they can give it to the next generation. So by definition, it's an inherently conservative process, right? Right. You conserve what's been given to you. Now I'm not talking about political conservatism, but here's this treasure that's handed from Christ's own lips to the apostles. And they say, this is so important, I have to tell you. Tell your children and make them repeat it, right? So by definition, it's that. However, times change, things change, and knowledge changes. So you have all these councils in the early church where they're trying to figure out what is the what are these Christological controversies? <laughs> is Jesus yeah. just God? It looks like man. Is he actually man? He claims to be God. And yeah. So they come to further understanding. And you could say that's new, right? So the Council of Jerusalem settles some questions. They have a new understanding. But that's not new because it's not what the last guy did. It's new because it's more it's better and it's good yeah yeah. and so the challenge always is how do you make the knowledge grow how do you make the revelation more knowable to the people because otherwise it can become antiquarianism and i think that's what we're talking about here antiquarianism is liking old stuff because you like old stuff yeah uh handing on the tradition is liking old stuff because it's good and true Mm -hmm. and it's the beauty of god is revealed there and if you've discovered something that the last guy didn't have awesome that's not new as much chronologically as much as it is more good, more beautiful, more right. true. And that's the key uh, distinction there. Also, legibility is really important. So if we were going to speak um, you know, medieval English or you know, Chaucerian English, you wouldn't really know what was being said in prayer very well unless you happen to know Chaucerian English, which most of us don't. <laughs> and so say, well, that's new because it's not old. It's not the same as have we increased the legibility because all this goodness of God is not only to be preserved, but it's also to be encountered. And so you maximize the encounter and you maximize the content of what is encountered. And those are the the principles. And if the encounter is more knowable because you're using an ancient form, awesome. If it's more knowable because you're using a newer form, great. However, the primary thing is how do you encounter what God wants you encounter and become changed by it yeah. and you know, move closer to your end, which is to see God. I got a question about that. So we're, we're talking about legibility, and legibility is a term that um, it makes me wonder how you know something's legible and, and if to what degree the legibility is preconditioned by the person who's doing the viewing. And if I, if I have like this really sophisticated architectural background, I can see a lot of what's happening in the building, but um, the you know the 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 Mrs. Murphys of the world, as you say in your book and quoting it in Kavanaugh, there there's there's a type of person who is a liturgist, and that's the person that practices the liturgy. But the liturgy the liturgiologists is who we are right now. We're talking about the thing that's not fundamentally about being talked about. Um, so we we think of legibility in ways that are much more discursive than the Mrs. Murphys of the world, and probably everyone else who looks at a building 
And the only thing they can say is, I like it or I don't. They have ferocious opinions about it, but they don't really know how to put it into the terms. Um, I, I wonder, maybe you can talk a little bit about how we can think about uh, legibility as architects. Um, because when we think of, when I think of something that's legible and I see like a picture, we're looking at um, uh, a, a project that, that Duncan Stork did recently. And it's like, it's in your book, I think. Or no, it was um, actually, it's, yeah, it's here in Houston. It's just built, yeah, yeah. And when I look at it, the first thing I think of, I see a lot of what's happening in the, in, in the thing he's designed, but um, like the selection of the materials, it's like really jarring color-wise. And someone else may look at that and they may say, oh, like it's, it's a nice traditional addition to St. Teresa's. Um, and the thing that pops out to me legibility-wise is not the effect of classicism. It's like a, a, a more nuanced thing because of how I've been you know, trained in my own design intuitions. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, um, the word that I love to use all the time on, is ontology or what's the nature yeah. of things. And in Latin, it's the <laughs> We've, the we've noticed that. You say that <laughs> the from, from time to what time. What is it? Right. <laughs> so um, you have to ask the question, what's a church, right? Yeah, yeah. If you don't know how to answer that question, then you're going to build something else or, or, you know, what's a house? If you build the bus station and say, well, no, there's your bedroom and you're, you know, in the big giant waiting hall that's 100,000 cubic feet. You're right, like, well, right. Good bedroom. So it could be a nice bus station, not a good bedroom. So this is where the freedom, stylistic freedom comes in because there have been lots of different kinds of churches over 2,000 years or 1,300 years that are nonetheless churchy. And people can tell when something... Sure. Looks like a church, feels like a church. Even if it doesn't look like a church they've ever seen before, they can say, there's churches here, and they can rest in it. Yeah. If they say, I don't know what that is. It looks like a pizza hut. It looks like a spaceship. It looks like a train station. Yeah. Then something's gone wrong there. Yeah. And so there's a kind of fundamental everyday, you know, every man legibility. Yeah. And then there's kind of the expert legibility for people in the middle or the upper you know, experience and education. Yeah. But my argument would be that if your building is ontologically a church, it will operate at all those levels. So the average person will say, mm. oh, that's a church. And then they, they don't think about it anymore. Then, you know, the middle level will say, I've studied art history and I see this is inspired by Notre Dame or whatever. And then an expert architect or architectural critic mm. would say, wow, this is not only looks like a church, not only has a lot of inspiration, but I see all the subtlety and nuance both of the architecture and the theology that's here. And so if it only works for the super smart people because you're in the in club, then it just becomes a little click of the architecture yeah. magazines. Yeah. If it only operates on the bottom, then it kind of hangs around in kitsch and you know, not very intellectually credible. Mm -hmm. And so the job is to be all of those things. It should look like something right away, and it should reward you for close inspection. Every yeah. molding, every detail, every choice, you can say, that's not arbitrary. That's not the cheapest thing. That's not yeah. just what the graphic standards of the code required, but that's actually sure. an intentional theological move because that's what heaven will be like, right? Everything will be in to the smallest detail will be conformed to the nature and reality and perfection of God. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of architecture, for, architecture for architects suffers from the in-crowd thing a lot. Um, because you're you're talking with words themselves that aren't shared among people, like referencing other buildings and doing things that um, just aren't, like you said, shared by everyone at all levels. Um, can you uh, think of an instance, see if you can draw something out, that is, in the book you talk about classicism um, as more a, an attitude towards nature, and it also has like motifs and things that are the instantiations of the worldview, but can you think of something that, an instance of a building that is classical in the worldview sense, but is is removed from like the pediments and like the flutes and columns and um, I that that's an actual. I guess what I'm worrying about is it's easy to conflate the 
the the objects themselves with the worldview and to say like classicism is not just an idea but it's a thing but it's mostly a thing because i see the corinthian you know capitals or something um, is there an, an example that comes to mind as the the token it's a classical building but it doesn't at all use the the, the bits and pieces that signal to you that it's classical uh well i mean sense? any a good place to look is sort of the lower end buildings in in a period dominated by classical design. So uh -huh. if you look at the you know water treatment plants from the 1920s in America or the electric stations and they they're in a hierarchy of buildings and they're at the bottom of it, right? Because they're practical sort of service yeah. buildings. Yeah. But a classical architect will design that with lovely proportions. They'll use materials that are dignified and appropriate to their station in the, the hierarchy of buildings. And you would never confuse it with the courthouse or the state capitol sure, or anything sure. like that. But yeah. they still re, uh, respond to the great inherited tradition. You'll see bases that are solid and thick and, you know, the yeah, big pieces yeah. of cut stone in the front. And then it'll step back a little bit where the, you know, it sits on the platform. There might be a little subtle move and a little shift of a sima, a little you know, S-shaped molding yeah, to yeah. transition to the vertical. And then if you actually measure out the facade, it might have a certain ratio of height to width that's proportional, that's intentional, that's harmonic that takes into account the golden section or a three to four ratio or three to five or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then it'll have some kind of termination that says, okay, there's, there's a delightful thing at the top and then the door will be different from the walls and so on. So that just says, well, here's where you enter, which is more important than where you don't enter. That's a classical method that yeah. might not have any columns at all. But asking, can you do classism without columns is like asking, can you write poetry without verbs? You know, there's just certain things that you need to have there, you know, you talk about classical Indian architecture, for instance, or classical Japanese architecture. They have their own mm -hmm. customs and their own uh, conventions. But you'll still see the same notion of, of, of um, glorifying where structural parts meet, you know, having graceful transitions from vertical to horizontals, yeah. foundations that look strong, terminations that look light and released. And those are basically understanding how nature works, right? Heavy things hold up light. Sure, things yeah, yeah. Things look I mean, light. It's clear. Yeah. So you, you would say then that those buildings, they're not great, and they're not good examples of the 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 worldview of classicism. They just use the system in a bit more of a domesticated way. Like the building you chose was a water treatment plant. Um, is I guess I mean that's part of why I'm asking the question. Is it doesn't seem like there's a good way to do it. It's like if you're going to do it, you use both like the the set pieces and the motifs and everything, and the apparatus for measuring up proportion and everything. Um, well, motifs are how you how you know what things are, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. You can say classical columns are old, so let's use them because they're old. That's that's a kind of neoclassicism. When I think of classicism, I say, well, classical columns are a whole bunch of things, right? They acquire meaning of all different kinds. Corinthian is a marker of high status. Doric is a marker of low status. Ionic is middle status. And so you have to say, what kind of building do I have here? You know, is this a courthouse, a church, or is it a water treatment plant? Yeah. And yeah. it has no columns, obviously. It's in even a lower status. So it's not about using columns. It's about using columns to represent the nature of the thing. Yeah. Right. And that's what we're talking about in Sacramental Revelation. This is at the low end of the spectrum of buildings in the city. So we're revealing the nature of the thing, which is revealing its ontology, which mm -hmm. is definition of beauty. Right? So a, a, a treatment, water treatment plant that is simple is proper to what a water treatment plant is right, in the hierarchy sure. of human activities. And so it should be simple to be what it is. It's not just simple to avoid using columns. Yeah, yeah. you know, what, what was striking to me, I, I was in Chicago a couple of years ago and took the boat tour, you know, in the river, and they take you by the Montgomery Ward warehouses. And it, they were beautiful. You know, even the warehouses have a certain dignity to them. And I think, in a way, yeah. reflect the fact that there are people working in them and that, that there is a, a company that it's representing. Yeah. So I think that classical design 
even at the lowest level, has a dignity that unfortunately just modernism doesn't. You know, if you look at a warehouse in, in the quote unquote modern language, um, there's nothing to it. You, won't, you probably won't even notice it. So I think there is definitely something to that. So here in Houston, we have a church uh, called St. Michael's that was designed by Edward Schulte, which I think you yeah. reference in your book. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about him? Yeah, Edward Schulte was a Cincinnati architect who was trained in the late 20s, early 30s, like at his beginning in the sort of high Gothic of Ralph Adams Graham, Bertram Goodhue, and a lot of those people of the 1920s. But he was a young architect then. And so then the Depression hits, and then the 40s happen, and the 50s and the 60s, and he's still an architect, but he's still convinced of all the principles of traditional, mostly medieval-inspired classical mm. architecture, but he yeah. lives in a time when he can't really do it. Right. And he's very interested in, in dialoguing with modernity without giving into the, the fundamental principles of modern thinking, the, right. modern, the modern world view. So he will make things that are abstracted, but he'll still have images of angels and saints. He'll have something that's recognizably modern, but it will still have gold mosaic and fine woodwork. And so what it is ontologically is a church, right? You see right. altar that's dominant, you see fine materials, you see figural images, and you see something with a steeple and a tower, and you can see it from a distance. And so by the 50s, he's like the leading guy. He designed you know, four cathedrals and 88 churches, I think, all over the country. Nobody's heard of him, really, except mm. for you you know, church wonks like us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he, in his, he wrote his autobiography, which is interesting, and he said in one or two of his churches he was trying to dialogue as far as he could with modernism as an architectural movement and mm -hmm. still maintain the churchliness of the church. Yeah. And modernism wasn't interested in doing that, right? They, everything had to be reduced to the factory because yep. that was the ideal oh, yeah. uh, building type. Yeah. No, I mean, I, for me, uh, I think Edward Schulte is really in, an interesting person to study specifically if you want to to see how you could marry the two if you will you know to kind of uh, address modernity evangelize modernity but without sacrificing the well the, ne the necessity of tradition and of ontology and all of that yeah, yeah. um and, and as i've gotten I, older i've started to say why do we have to address modernity i mean why do we have to address modernism at all i mean it's you know so we live in a modern age and we have concrete and steel yeah. and we have machines for building things faster okay great right. However, modernism is a philosophy, you know, it's a building philosophy based on a secular atheist, mostly. Yes. <laughs> uh, philosophy. So why are we saying how, how close can we bow down before your feet, modernism, so that you will give us the credibility of being worthy of you? Yeah. No. We're Christians. We build Christian things. You have anything yeah. to teach us and help us with moder modernism? Okay, maybe. But that's not our goal. Our goal is not to show how relevant we are based on secular standards of agnostic sure. factories, right? Our goal is to say, how can we best sacramentalize God's own plan for us? Yeah. And so that should come first. No more bowing at the altar of modernism. Sure, sure. And now and now well, I'm getting old and cranky now, so that's why I can say <laughs> <laughs> right, that. Mean, <laughs> get your cane out and wrap around. I mean, it's very true, but at the same time, I, I do wonder, and this is, and we'll turn to another question. So uh, when I was in school, the big thing that was, Kind of bouncing around was that the museum was the new cathedral you know yeah, that the museum is now our our new institution dagger that, to the heart you know, you know? which yeah. for me was like oh man like why you know like why why can't churches be so amazing that everyone recognizes their cultural value very much like notre dame you know you have this fire and all around the world people are mourning over a building right mm -hmm. so my, my question is just like can we get back to the point that we're designing and building churches that people everyone doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not a Christian, recognize as like cultural 
artifacts that are so valuable to us because they say so much about what it means to be human. Yeah. So how does that play into it? It'd be nice, you know, I mean, the, the economics of a free market capitalist system uh, where it doesn't have, you know, churches don't have government or the, yeah. you know, support of the king. It makes, makes it a lot a, harder. A little harder. <laughs> uh, you know, and I find it funny. I saw some, I don't know if it was for an antique piece at a, for a church, you know, resale company, but it said a museum worthy piece of art for your church. And I was like, no, it's a church worthy. Church worthy, piece of yeah. Art. That's right. <laughs> it shows up in a museum. You know, we, we got it all backwards. And, you know, there's an interesting intellectual history to that because after the French Revolution, they, uh, you know, they had destroyed all a lot of monuments and knocked the heads off of statues and right. broke a lot of stained glass windows in the reign of terror. And then they woke up and they're like, oh, what did we just do? <laughs> just yeah. destroyed yeah. our own cultural heritage. But, you know, we're not Christians anymore. So what do we do? You know why these things are valuable? Because they're a sign of history, our own history. And so history substitutes for God in that mm. period as the thing which society values. Mm. This is where historic preservation comes from, if you ever hear people talk about a building, they say it's the perfect example of mid-19th century Gothic revival. They don't say it's the perfect sacramentalization of the heavenly Jerusalem. Right? So this is totally. the modernist worldview. Now, I mean modern in terms of intellectual history, not architecture so much. Is History is the reason we do anything. And so the museum is, of course, the treasure box of historical things, right? Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so they don't care if it's a good evocation of Christ and glory. They just say it's the perfect example of the northern you know, renaissance whatever, blah, 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 from this period. So if you look through, you know, the little plaques you see next to the painting, they'll never say anything theologically. Or they sure. might say they thought theologically in that. Yeah. Because right? that was then, this is now, that's the modernist worldview, anti-traditional. Sure. We've yeah. evolved past that, pay, yeah. that phase of history. I went back. So how do, we, oh, how do we get beyond the historical argument into the theological argument? That's the real challenge, I think. Right. I went back recently as I was preparing for this. Part of, part of what's really compelling or not compelling, part of what's really exciting about this discussion for me is that what you've been talking about is is very removed from what is our, like, uh, the pedagogical structure that we've been, you know, progressed through. And we're all a direct outgrowth of the, the Bauhaus education, which for our listeners who are not architects, um, 1914 to 1933, there was this, um, this school in Weimar, Germany, immediately after World War I, that if you read the, the, the writings for Walter Gropius, the guy that started it, he's talking about like a reunification of all the arts, architecture, and getting back to things that if you only injected something about Jesus, or not injected, but if it were rooted in that, it would be, it's sort of like he's, he's rewriting the Renaissance. Like it's, it's ambitions and its scale and like the, the intensity of it is sort of intoxicating. But at the end, it's like, it seems like it's, it's like we're progressive now and then they don't define where they're going towards. And it's, that's what I think a lot of um, at least North American architecture schools are, are sort of based in. Uh, and like, you know, Corb's five points are in some way the direct antithesis to classicism because they're about taking control of the, of nature and removing yourself from the needs for structure and for organization and for even like, you know, bounding yourself to the world. We're going to put plants on the roof. Um, the, we're, we're sort of put in this process that has, it seems like noble ambitions, but remove Jesus from the picture. And it's like, there's no foundation. And we've just been waffling for, you know, the better part of a hundred years. Um, so the, there was a question somewhere in the beginning of that, but <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have some thoughts there, you know, the, the whole Bauhaus method, right. Is what, almost just about a hundred years old. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, who else was practicing in, 
100 years ago? Ralph Adams Cram, Bertram Goodhue, <laughs> career right, right, right. 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 So that, that yeah, was yeah, yeah. the dominant no mode of architecture that. in the teens and 20s in the US, right? And so there are the few little modernist guys no one ever heard of until after World War II mm -hmm. who are coming up with these alternative theories. So, well, that's the true architecture of our age? Well, no architect in New York in 1920 would have said the Bauhaus is the architecture of our age. Yeah. yeah. Crazy people in Germany who have these you know, crazy theories. So you have these modernist architecture schools saying, oh, we have to stay true to the principles of the Bauhaus. Well, that's a historical mindset, right? That's what they thought 100 years ago. But why are they picking that history versus some other history, right? Because it's a philosophical choice and it's a belief system. And it, the belief system of someone who doesn't have Christ in their life, who doesn't believe God ordered nature and gave it number, measure, and weight, God you know, doesn't ask us to be subordinate to him, doesn't, doesn't ask us to reveal who he is to the world. Well, those things are just off the page for most architects. It's how do yeah. you solve this functional problem? How do you make sure. it true to its age? And that's that, you know, you, did you study Hegel and the Hegelian dialectic in, yeah. in your uh, studies about how you know, civilizations uh, advance from the thesis to the antithesis to the synthesis, right? So periods have a dominant theory. They breed their opposite because people get tired of it and then the two fight it out until the next one comes along. And that's our age, the zeitgeist, the spirit of our age is the spirit. It's not the Holy Ghost, right? right. In German, it's Heiliger Geist. And in German architecture, it's Zeitgeist. And we have let the Zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, replace the Holy Ghost as the revealer. And so you just limit yourself. Well, we're going to do what they did 100 years ago based on some unpredictable notion of what the spirit of the age is about, which is always determined by the bully, by the way. The spirit of the age is never known until later, and it's the bully who decides what it is now. If you were in 1930 Germany, the spirit of the age theoretically would be National Socialism, right, and Hitler's theory. But you have to be able to step out and say, no, that's not the spirit of the age. That's a deformation of the will of the Holy Spirit. Just because you're in charge doesn't mean it's good. And so you have to step back from these inherited theories and say, what's the good? What's the true? What's the beautiful? What's the nature of the thing itself? And then you can develop a good theory. Notice I haven't said style really once yet. Sure. Yeah. Styles are local versions of doing this, and that's what classicism always does. It takes the pattern of nature, tries to find the mind of God, and then expresses it in architecture in an elevated way. Not just in a practical way, but in an elevated way. Yeah. So it's like ballet versus you know stomping around in heavy army boots. There's a difference, and they're both good, but classicism in many ways is a ballet-like version of mm -hmm. architecture. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I think that it's hard to argue that it's not a very reliable way to achieve the very things that you're talking about. You know, so there's a proven track record that it has worked. You know, whereas with, mm -hmm. if you were to try to make a, a style, quote unquote, from scratch, it would be very difficult. You know, I mean, it, it always, architecture doesn't exist in a vacuum at the end of the right. day. And it's hard to do anything from scratch and expect anybody to know what you're talking about, right? So, yes. Right. If you guys started, had your own little private language that you came up with in your room and didn't tell me and then started talking that language, I, I wouldn't know what you were saying. Right? Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so, but even, even but like you the, can invent a new word like Jabberwocky, and I'm like, ooh, I don't know what that means, but because yeah. the rest of the words are still English, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. I can, I can say yeah. that word. Yeah. So you can have invention and novelty, and that, that is, in fact, necessary, I think, to keep things fresh and yeah. exciting. But if it fresh and exciting becomes the goal over clarity of communication and then important concepts to be communicated, yeah. then you're just making whipped cream and not a serious meal. You know? yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, even Mies was a classicist. Like, he pared things down, but... And in, in its root in his training and a lot of what he did. Um, well, all modernists were classicists at one point. I mean, they were all trained. Right. But like the guy who's like one way. of the top dogs is it, yeah. even the even the ones who would begin with the tabula rasa, like philosophically, it's not actually 
a thing. Like what one thing I appreciate about the book, and maybe you can talk about it a little bit, is you you lay claim a lot to the idea that uh, architecture is the built form of ideas. And in a span of like seven pages, you say it like seven thousand times, and it's like I got it. <laughs> like it's it's a thing. It's very clear. Um, but um, can you talk about that a little bit and about how like you can't not have a metaphysic with a building. It ha- it plays the game. It's just a matter of how you want to do it. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and uh, ways that we can understand that? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, I remember um, when I read Vitruvius, and Vitruvius in the very first book, right, very first paragraph says, there are two components to architecture. There are ideas signified, and there are things that signify those ideas. Right. So basically, he says there's an invisible concept of a thought, and then architecture expresses that thought somehow. And we're like, whoa, an invisible idea that's expressed through material stuff. That's the Catholic definition of a sacrament, basically, right? God's invisible reality yeah. is made knowable and encounterable through matter. And so, of course, Vitruvius, you know, around the year zero, he's not a Catholic, but he gets this philosophical yeah. idea. And so the Romans knew this, you know, a bigger building in the center of town with bigger columns and more columns and Corinthian columns versus Doric columns. That was the externalization of this idea of the hierarchy of goods in the city. And so, you know, in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, of course, they really developed the city as this archetypal place that images heaven. And so you go to Rome, you know St. Peter's is the top dog of that city, right? Because it's the Vegas and it has the dome. These are classical principles that are taking ideas and making them knowable in the senses. Even if you don't know classicism, you just know, wow, there's that big thing in the center of town. That must be important. What is it? And so that's the revelation of ideas. And if you know the ideas, you can make the revelation of ideas more tangible, more specific, more articulate. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, when I go to, let's say, your run-of-the-mill church here in Houston, suburban church, a lot of times what they lack the most that would help is just hierarchy, visual hierarchy, knowing what is most important, what is less important. And one thing classicism does really well is tell you what's important. You know, even even when you're walking on the outside, you know where to walk in. Sometimes I remember when I was in school. There's a there's a I don't know how familiar you are with architecture in Houston, but there's the Manil Foundation here in Houston, and it's a museum. And our professors, when we were studying the building, would say, "You don't know what the, where the front or back is to this building," and that was something to be celebrated. You know, as as if not not having an idea of where to walk into the to the building was a good thing. You know, so it's it's um. It's not. It's easy to see why modernism doesn't fit well within uh, the ecclesial context because in the ecclesial context, you want to know what's most important. You want to be oriented. You want to be pointed in the right direction. So right. It, the building forms you as a Christian, right? So yeah. if you if someone just read the words of the gospel to you and took them all out of order and put the words at the end first and you know, the chapters at the end and the beginning, you say, I don't know what you're saying to me. Right? How can God form me with this knowledge of the truth that will set me free? if I can't comprehend the knowledge of the truth because yeah. you have messed with it because you think word order is boring, right? Word order, established word order is so, you know, 100 years ago. Well, that's really a separate question. How Then the preacher would come along and say, I'm going to give you my new insight on this true thing. So there yeah. is this interaction, interplay between expectation, tradition, established things, and then what is the new insight? What has the Holy Spirit revealed to us since the last time I heard this homily? so that I can know more about the same thing. But if you ruin the same thing and the scripture isn't there, then it's not formative on you. And I think you can think about architecture that way too. If it becomes an architectural game for the architectural specialist, then it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah. Well, and I think that by the same token, a building 
there is no neutral building. Every building forms you in some way. So if it's a building that tells you that nothing is important, then you will grow up thinking that nothing is important, right? Exactly. Um, right. If your altar can be carried out by two strong guys because it's just you know four planks and some wood on top, then you say, well, the altar's not the altar's not Christ. The altar's not eternal. The altar's right. not God standing with people. Mm -hmm. If you guys can carry it out of here, well, I guess it's no more important than my living room table. Now you might not think all those words, but somehow intuitively you say, "Oh, um, this is boring. I have not encountered the mystery of God, and therefore all I am encountering is some second-rate." non-mystery of man and that has no compelling power to move the soul to say yeah, sure God. and it's it's part of you know it's built into who we are i have uh we each have have three kids that are about the same age and our oldest is uh six and seven and colby we um when i was in grad school we lived really close to one church in town uh near the university at rice and uh, we bought a house and we actually lived next door to each other so this is how we're able to do this podcast thing um, but we, we asked them, said, where do you want to go to church? Um, because one's really close to us, but another, we are really tied to the community. Uh, it's a little further away. And he said, I want to go to that church, the one that's a little further away. Uh, I said, oh, really? And like the architect, and he's like, ooh, let me investigate what's going on here. Mm -hmm. I'm like, so why? And the first thing he said is, well, they have Magnificates. And it's this like little <laughs> magazine thing. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and then he said, but it, it feels like a church. And then he started describing things and like, he's not an architect. And then he hit, like, I, I'm not even licensed yet technically. So I, I still have a couple more exams. So, um, but he, we, we talk about it and he describes a few things, but it's really like, like he is, he's the Mrs. Murphy as like a six-year-old. He's like, it just feels like a church. And one of them um, is like a much higher space. And it's got a few things just like massing wise that like, I still think it has its, its difficulties. Um, of, of expressing uh, the ontological reality of the glorified heavenly Jerusalem. And if I can plug into my inner Dennis McNamara here, um, but, <laughs> but it's, um, I've listened to a lot of YouTube videos, so I'm pretty good at that. But you know, I didn't invent this stuff. This is the stuff I've mined out of a great. No, no, I know. And I, I, I appreciate yeah. the synthesis. Like it's, it's very readable and it's very comprehensible. And um, uh, so anyways, when Colby says that, he's like, that's a church. There are all these little triggers that tell me that it's it's not this uh, like academic elites game you're playing. It's it's something that's built into who we are, and there are a few basic things. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you're if you have a bilateral bilaterally symmetrical building that's really tall and it's got a few other things going for it, yeah. you're you know halfway towards something that's telling you what it is in a productive way. Yeah. yeah, right. We're not surprised when a kid thinks that ice cream is delicious. We're like, well, how does he know it's delicious? It's just Right. Is, right. So why are we surprised when a kid can say that's pretty, right? Because they just have yeah. an intuitive sense of the good. And then later on, they develop an intellect to know exactly why they're saying that or sure. you know, to change their mind away from the nature of things. <laughs> They've been to architecture school, you know, they learn, learn everything backwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the, there's a bit of an unlearning that we're having to do and um, trying to, like, my design intuition isn't to, you know, overlay a classicist uh, view onto something um, and I'm not like fundamentally opposed to it but it's just not where I'm comfortable at so I'm, I'm out of my comfort zone whenever we have to design a, a church and um, not not all churches but when we have to design a building and it's uh, whenever the motifs and the the instantiations of classicism become a thing we have to design that's something I'm having to learn and my intuition I guess this is it this is kind of a revelation, actually. I never put it to terms before. I think 
like the worldview you're describing, but the things I design in school are, you know, they're like the out, the Bauhaus machine chugged out like little details of things. So I'm trying to figure out how to basically be Edward Schulte, which is like <laughs> to, to have the heart of the church, but to design something that's uh, like, I, I'm just, you know, it's that reconciliation that is is like my personal professional project for like the rest of my life, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things about the early modernists, as you said, they were classicists, so they understood classical principles and expressed them in a modern form. I don't think a modernist trained person can become an, a traditional designer, even a half traditional designer, as easily as a traditional one could become a modernist. Oh yeah, totally. Um, because I, you know, I don't know if I said it in the book, but somewhere along the line, I said modernism isn't its own thing. It's just really bad classicism, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. And so there might be structural clarity, but you can't really see it. You know, there's yeah. this hierarchy sometimes, but it's not very legible. If you decide that, you know, everything is to be flattened into one level, and the only archetype is the industrial materials of the factory, well, you're going to produce a lot of factories or factory-looking things. If you say, well, columns are just replaceable by steel I beams. Well, then you've lost what a column is with its head and its foot and a person and the sure, hierarchy of sure. types and whether it's fluted or not and all that stuff. And so to just say, well, we've tossed out 90% of the vocabulary, but we're going to make something just as legible, it's kind of impossible. Um, so one of my major jobs when I deal with clients is I ask who their architect is. And, well, we want a traditional church. And I, in five seconds, I can tell from their website if they know how to do yeah. it. <laughs> And as you know, it's a very demanding way to design. It's not just sprinkle a few columns it's around. It's super tough. It's, it's way more Proportions and beams and every time anything moves five feet, this direction has to move five feet. This direction, the port, oh proportions have to shift. And so it's really, really, really demanding. So I, I always tell people, don't hire an architect to, to do traditional architecture if they don't know how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Right. Yeah. It, I mean, it's almost like the, the, the parametric project of... Um, you know Zaha Hadid and all of her, um, you know the outgrowth of her her practice. They they would fundamentally have a leg up in a classical world because the, you know the relationships are so well defined that they're using parametricism to make blobs and you know it's it's they have more sophisticated explanations of that but they're using it to create uh, foreignness formally and. Um, the a lot of what's difficult about it seems to me classicism and, and whatever incarnation if it's like you know romanesque or you know, whatever um is the intensity of the system and it takes a lot of time and effort to do that and in contemporary practice things change and shift and uh, i can imagine working something out and then tweaking it for some structural reason or code reason and then having to go do it again and you know just the modification of that would would take forever or, or maybe not if you're really good at it you've designed it knowing that the things that matter are the proportion and everything else bows down to that. Right. And the, the local codes don't allow the church to be so many feet tall. And then you go for the review and they're like, uh, take three and a half feet off the roof line. Yeah. But don't yeah. you understand those three and a half feet make it as it's supposed to be in relation oh to its width and its length and all numbers. And it's like saying to an opera singer, you know, you're singing that note too on pitch. Could you sing just a little flat know. for our right. code yeah. reasons and, and expect everything to be fine? And so it is a very demanding... Um, it is, you know, and, but I think what, what it means is that it, it causes us to need to be more creative in how we phase churches, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, what we see a lot of times when we, when we design a church, we'll design a, a beautiful traditional church with nice proportions, and then the budget comes in, and they're like, oh, it's expensive. Okay, what's the first thing that gets cut? The height. Oh and there gosh. it goes, you know. And once you do that, I mean, it just undoes so many things. 
Mm-hmm. But one interesting case study is the um, the Benedictine Abbey of Clear Creek, yeah, which yeah. what they're doing, I'm sure you're familiar with, is they're staging yep. it so that they're going to build it up to a certain level, and then they will finish the rest of the height at a later time. I wonder if that could ever be done in a parish setting, and and if building committees oh, and, sure. and yeah. parishioners would accept it. You know, that's always people the, get impatient though. That's, that we want this done yeah. in 18 months, and you know we don't want to worship right. in the gym mm-hmm. for all that time. And you know, you understand there's there's always the practicalities and. So I don't hang around in the realm of practicalities because I'm not an architect, right? So I hang around in the realm of academic high thoughts. But the thing is you can't deal with the practicalities if you don't know the high thoughts. What's the nature of a church? If you don't know that, then it doesn't matter how many practicalities you solve because you still haven't built the fullness of the expression of the church. I think what it means to be a dad and you're just the babysitter because you've never heard that a dad should love his kid. Well, sure, the kid's getting food, but it's not the same thing as the reality of fatherhood. Sure. So and, and I know you've been involved in consulting, uh, consulting role with projects. So I know you're familiar with it, both from being in the weeds and you know thinking about it from an academic perspective. But it's super hard, and, and this is like talking in the mic to the listener. It's super hard to get a building built today. Buildings are super expensive. They're millions of dollars. They take years of effort. It take a lot of political will because it's. I mean, you even talk about it in your book, talking about uh, one of the bishops' documents where they say building a new church. It's it's a kind of it's a decision like literally like rooted in like the it's a tearing away like there's something that's going to be destroyed and some people are going to get hurt and it's um, it takes a lot of effort to do something well and there are many 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 opportunities to make decisions as an architect and as a design team that um, there will be an easy way out that makes the project more affordable it'll go faster and it will solve a bunch of problems but it will run counter to um, what the church is trying to express as it's like a pedagogical thing and as a theological thing and as you know the, the sacramental aesthetic can be compromised in a thousand and one ways so I, I totally agree with what you're saying that you you can't do it well unless you know what it is you're doing and not only that unless you know what you're willing to unless you know the idea and what needs to be sacrificed in order to make it a reality you can't do it well so it's it's not even like you can um, I, I like the idea that architects are generalists and they can do lots of things, but it's like with churches, you have to not only know it, but you almost have to, it has to be a way of being so that you can know when you need to go out of your way and raise a little more money or delay the project by a couple of years or well, make it happen. And I also think from, from the architect's perspective, so w- one of our big jobs is to sell the project to the committee. And I think yeah. that being well-versed in what they're losing when they decide to lower the height. You know, yeah. to be able to articulate that well is something that we're always trying to get better at. Because and what can what you do as an architect to solve that problem? So I don't know if you've ever seen the pictures of the St. John Paul II Chapel we did here at Mundelein's. Long shoebox. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's maybe two times as deep as it is high, maybe more. And so when the architect came in and said, how can I make something vertical? You know, established everything along certain axes, put vertical pilasters on the rear wall, did everything he could to give vertical lines to this very horizontal yeah. place yeah. that wanted your eyes to go out to the corners. Sometimes you're stuck with a low ceiling, but what can yeah. you do to give right. it the kind of dignity that it should have? And that's just what happens sometimes. And, you know, architects are talented at that or they're not, right? And right. one of my big problems is pastors call me, oh, we hired this architect and he's the brother-in-law of our janitor. And <laughs> you immediately face palm and you're like, oh, geez. Yeah, <laughs> he's never designed a church before, but he promises he can learn. I'm like, Father, you want this guy to learn how to design churches on your billable hours? Yeah. You would never do that with a brain surgeon. Why would you do that with an architect? Yeah, totally. And, and, and the know, architect's almost been, more important. 
and you've been to architecture school, and you know how when they have student reviews, you know, all the students line up their work, and who's the person who always goes last in every student review? It's the one with the best project, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because nobody wants to come after the best project and look less good. And so that's how the architecture profession works. Who's the guy or gal who's always been the last one in the reviews? Who's the one who's the top 5% yeah, of the profession? True. Who's the one who knows what heavenly Jerusalem means and has the design skill to follow it up? And so like everything else, people say, oh, well, I don't want to pay for an architect who's really good because it costs too much. Well, okay, well, then get a plastic surgeon who doesn't know how to put your nose in the right place because <laughs> it costs Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It yeah. makes no sense at all. So, uh, but it's hard thing. People think, oh, it costs X more dollars, so therefore it's not a good deal. But in the end, you're going to spend $15 million and get a crummy building. That's a really bad smell. Oh my that gosh. will be there for a very long time. Right, That's... not paying an architect a little more for the actual skill that they're worth. Yeah, yeah. It... I oh, I was just, just yeah. going to ask. Um, so right now, there, there's a lot of encouraging signs in, you know, in the architectural, in the church architecture world specifically. You know, there's a lot of beautiful churches being built now you know in the classical tradition and you know obviously there's like the cathedral in raleigh the cathedral and there's another cathedral that was on the east coast there's a lot of beautiful buildings going up that that are very encouraging i was curious it seems though however that there most of them are in the in the classical style and the gothic style is not as prominent in this in this revival if you will I was curious if you if you had any thoughts as to why that may be. I mean, is, is Gothic architecture more expensive, or or why is there not a equivalent to Duncan Stroik in the Gothic tradition, for example? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, there are. You know, the one firm that really specializes in that is um, HDB Cram Ferguson up mm -hmm. in um, yeah. Boston. But Gothic architecture is very demanding artistically, certainly. Yeah. Uh, and also budget-wise, all that cut stone and all this, you know, proportion of one piece to the other. Um, and so it's just harder to do. It's more expensive to do it in the, in the, the real way. Yeah. You know, James McCreary, who's a classical architect mostly in Washington, uh, did a kind of Gothic building out at the Newman Center in Lincoln, Nebraska. Mm. Uh, it's kind of Gothic in a classical way. You know, Gothic yeah. has all these layers and all these cut stone moldings and everything. They're very expensive. Yeah. So just you know, putting a few pointed arches on something doesn't make it Gothic. No, um, so I not. think for, for you know, and, you know, and even in your own town, you know, Jackson and Ryan, the firm has done some big, Gothic uh, churches. Yeah, um, that's who we work for, by the way. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, um, and you know, it's, it's it's a tough thing to do. And you know, I think there's a certain level of sophistication of client and budget and architect that Gothic demands. Yeah. Um, classicism. There, there was a big movement in classicism that hasn't happened yet in Gothic, and it's like a next stage of development, probably. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I think. Um, I just have a great love for for Gothic architecture. I'd love to, yeah, uh, yeah. to do more of it. And you know, we we're working with Our Lady of Walsingham here in Houston, um, and they uh, they have future projects that hopefully will give us more opportunities to do that. But yeah, it's, it's uh, an exciting style to work in. Yeah, it's one of the but few. As too, you know, that, very demanding and expensive. And and expensive, yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the few that seems to be exclusively Catholic as well. Like there are lots of other styles that have been co-opted by, like the if you look at the classical tradition you begin from the very beginning all the way up to like modern fascists and you're like well they didn't actually use it in the same way that people in the beginning were using it and you know the you know their political buildings and their religious buildings and you know it kind of spans the gamut but you don't see 
a courthouse that's gothic and you don't see like a roller rink that's gothic or even houses that are gothic. It's like only churches and only Catholic churches. Well, you do see the Parliament building in England and yeah. in London is, is In gothic. the 19th century, there was this huge, you know, gothic right. revival movement. Right. And so, as you say, look, kids being fed, right? You know, they're from uh, National Lampoon's vacation uh, <laughs> in, in London and other things. You know, there were some what they call the high Victorian gothic in the 1870s mostly, which, you know, New Haven, Connecticut, there's a sort of gothic town hall, and there you do some courthouses and other things in that period uh, being kind of uh, gothic. But you're right, it was understood to be kind of exclusively ecclesiastical. ecclesiastical. I don't know if you ever read uh, any of Pugin's works while you're in architecture mm-hmm. school. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He has this famous polemical books in the 19th century on why gothic is the only Christian style and writes <laughs> the true, true English goth, you know, Catholic style because the Middle Ages are the age of faith, and that's the pr- architecture they produced, you know, which is sort of okay politically, but it's not really a theological question, right? He's not saying, how do we make the best vision of the heavenly Jerusalem? He's saying, how can we make the best 14th century English Gothic? That's a different question. So then the the next generation says, oh, I don't know what heavenly Jerusalem is. All I know is that guy was pushing one style. This guy's pushing another style. Those styles don't mean anything. So if we're going to do something in a style that makes sense to us, we have to use the materials of our age. So it's the same thought process. Our style, they don't call it a style, although it's become a style now, mm-hmm. is what's true to our age. The 19th century is true to its age. The Middle Ages is true to its age. And um, nobody was working at the essential level of the nature and idea of the thing. And so copying old things brought some stuff kicking and screaming with it, right? It looked like a church then, looks like a church now. Yeah. Uh, but that's still not, in my mind, a deep enough sort of philosophical and theological investigation into the nature of things. Because once you know what the nature of the thing is, you can do as many of them as you want and in the newest way as you want, right. as long as it's staying in that safe category, which is why you can look at an early Christian church, a Byzantine church, a Romanist church, a Gothic church, a Baroque church, and they're all churches, even though they don't look anything like each other, because right. they're all in that ontological category, churchness. As soon as you say a church is a machine for praying in and it's really a factory yeah. or a living room, <laughs> Then you've left the ontological category, church, and you're trying to do churchy things in a non-church building. And that's when people start to say, something's not right here. I don't know how to yeah. put words to it, but something's not right. Why does it look like a living room, a pizza hut, a spaceship, or whatever? Because <laughs> ontologically, it's something else, right? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I, I was curious to get your thoughts on, on Gaudi and Sagrada Familia. Like, you know, if, if that falls within the classical tradition, because to me, it seems like it's one of the few examples of a building that is still capturing the imagination of everyone, you know, not just Christians or Catholics. I think every person who knows, has ever seen a church would look at that either from a distance or close up and say, that's a church, right? Yeah. No, you, know, you have to know that much. Then you get close, you say, it's kind of weird, right? Yeah. Look at all these cool, <laughs> inventive, weird things, but there's still stained glass, there's still stone, there's still statues of saints, there's still a great portal where the angels and saints come to meet you, there's still, you know, plant-based forms that look like (laughs) the alien plants or earthen plants we don't quite know (laughs) well that's it right you know he has his own particular idiosyncratic style idiosyncratic comes across as negative it only means like personal to him yeah he has his own particular genius like michelangelo did you know i think part of the reason people like it is because it's weird and not because it's christian okay well fine yeah Uh, but i think any christian could still find it's a it's a church even though it has a lot of this um, certain unusual stuff in it. So in my book, it fits the ontological category of church. Yeah. It, it is interesting, though, when you hear, let's say, secular media talking about Sagrada Familia, they always are quick to say, oh, you know, it's just a spiritual space for everyone. You know, like they, they're yeah. quick to kind of universalize it yeah. and, and therefore sacrifice all of its mm-hmm. meaning and, 
And that's right. Well, <laughs> if it's not a spiritual space for everyone, then it's a not then it's a sacramental particularity for Catholics, right? right. And then therefore, it's not valuable to anybody except Catholics. So, yeah, we we kind of are willing to sell out a little bit to say, well, everybody's welcome here in the spiritual space. But actually, we should be saying, at least at our level, we know that this is how God is encountered through the materiality of the world, through the incarnation and the transfiguration applied to matter. Yeah. And then everybody's welcome to come encounter that with us, right? So just to say it's a space. And, you know, that's one of my particular... Yeah. Yeah, I was... Hot buttons, too. The building is a building, not a space, right? It's made of stuff. And right. the space results from the design of the building. And the, yeah. the build, you don't create space, you design a building. So. Yeah. I think if you were going to criticize Gaudi, because I think he has a genius, and that building is, is going to go down as one of the, you know, one of the best in history, but it's, it's hard to replicate. It's kind of yeah. the, the problem with it, if you will. You know, you can replicate Gothic architecture, you can replicate classical architecture, but I think Gaudi's architecture would be very difficult to replicate. It's so unique mm-hmm. that it's, I mean, you could, but, but I, I mean, think so it would be so, so much so that we refer to it by his name. Right. Like it, it is his person. It's almost more of a sculpture than a building yeah. in, in a certain right. sense. And, you know, if you were alive and said, hey, sculptor, make the next thing that Bernini would have made, you know, this great Baroque sculpture, you could sort of do something in the style of yeah. Bernini, maybe, but would they have his particular genius? That's a no, good, probably that's not. Good example. I have a question for you that's a little different, um, and it's going to be a little bit more practical for those who are listening who are, um, you know, bishops or pastors or in some way involved in parish building committees. Um, in your work uh, in consulting them, where do you find most people are in the spectrum of, um, I mean, your project in some way is the restoration of the ontological, uh, like the restoration of being of a church and then coming out of that. And it seems like the people are going to be somewhere on the spectrum. They're either like, you know, right there with you or they're kind of off the rocker or somewhere in between how what's the most common place that you find the people you work with in that era do you have to work a lot with them or are they basically just need a little bit of guidance what do you have to do well the people who call me usually know what they're getting right so i tend to sure talk to friendly people however every now and then a pastor calls in because our people don't know what a church is they're fighting about some people want modern some people want this some people want the 1970s church in the round yeah and nobody knows what a church is. And so that's another problem to solve. But I would say generally what I hear is, I want our church to look like a church. Yeah. I don't know what that means. Uh, I have some ideas, but can you help us understand? And so what I've found is you spend an hour or two or three, you have a study day in architecture with everyone, and you explain, well, the Temple of Solomon was something, the heavenly Jerusalem is something, the church building is an image of the mystical body of Christ brought to glory, and therefore the material should evoke that. They're like, oh, oh, I, I never thought of that. And ideas really do have consequences when people really understand them. Why is our ceiling dark blue with stars on it? Because they did that in the Middle Ages? No, because liturgy is a cosmic event that takes place in the totality of all of creation, and the stars are worshiping God by moving in their orbits. Oh, that's a cool idea. Yeah, maybe we should have some stars, at least over the sanctuary. Sure. Or what's the tabernacle? That's that pre-Vatican II thing that we should get rid of and put in another room. Well, actually, the tabernacle is the fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant, which was the golden box where God was abiding with his people in the Old Testament. It's not a threat to you anymore. Oh, really? Like the Judaism of Catholicism could come forward and this could be, you know, ecumenically sensitive to our Jewish friends? Absolutely. Oh, well, let's do that then. And so my understanding is people always have an operative theology or an operative ontology, whether they know those words or not. Yeah, they yeah. think they know what a church is, and then you sort of say, hey, can I bring you along to understand what this really is? And for the most part, there's always about 5% of every 
parish that doesn't want anything to change. And sure. Walk out yeah. angry. <laughs> but oh, the great me. middle we, comes we around. work with them every day. <laughs> what I hear from most people, most often, is you gave me words for what I already knew. So I went into a church and I said, wow, this is a church. I don't know why. And then I say, you know what it feels like a church? Because it's glorified, it's perfected, you're encountering the angels and saints, it's centered on God, all the materials are elevated. It's where you want to be, and it's what the world you want, what you want the world to be like. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I never thought of that, but yeah, now that you say it, <laughs> now I can now I can say it too. But that's really gratifying when you hear that from somebody. I wanted to uh, ask you a little bit about liturgy specifically and its role in the change in church architecture. So, you know, the 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 word we've been avoiding up to this point for the most part is Vatican II. <laughs> and mm -hmm. there was clearly a a shift in how the liturgy was celebrated pre and post. Of course, you know, there there is a lot of debate, a lot of ink that has been spilled as to was it caused by the council or not and so on and so forth. But putting that aside for a moment, there I think if you were to be a Catholic in the 1950s that went to Mass, and if you went to Mass, fast forward to today, the Mass is very different. You know, in, in fact, if you're, not, if you're not versed in liturgy, you might even think it's a different faith. You know, there, there was a lot of, of changes, and, and a, it's all still there, but it's just different, you know. So especially in the 60s, 70s, mm -hmm. there was many examples of liturgies that were really different, bordering on abuse, abusive or even worse. So I guess my question is, um, all these churches that we've, we've gotten, all these, let's say, ugly churches, modernist churches that we had, is it really just a problem of architecture, or were they just reflecting the liturgy as it was being celebrated in those decades? I think it's, there's two things there. You know, there were modernist churches being built before Vatican II, right? There's True. Really early ones yeah, in yeah. France that yeah. are poured concrete. Yeah. But they're long and they're tall, and the stained glass might be abstract and modern, but it's there. Right. And the high altar is still at the end of the narrow end, and there's a great high ceiling, and the altar, it's like climbing this holy mountain into this vision of you know eternity. It just happens to be made of concrete rather than stone. Right. Then there's another thing that happens after Vatican II, but not because of Vatican II, which is right. this notion that the liturgy is the meal among friends, yeah. as opposed yeah. to the sacred offering wow. of God the Father <laughs> to the Son. And so we talked before about architecture being the built form of ideas. So church architecture, I say, is the built form of theology. Right? So if your theology is a gathering theology of a, of a meal between friends where you express your feelings and sing your song, basically you express your reality, as opposed to you allow your reality to be changed by encountering the normative things of God, then you're going to make a building that's about you doing your thing. So in the round, there's a table, the sure. tone is casual, Hi, Father. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great. How are you? Well, turn yeah. to your neighbor and say hello. Introduce yourself. Right? There's no such thing in Vatican II that says turn to your neighbor and introduce yourself. It's not there <laughs> in any authoritative document. What it is, false that theology, isn't in many that ways. isn't the first line of Sacrosanctum Concilium. <laughs> it, it is not. But you know what Sacrosanctum Concilium wanted people to know was that they had a role in liturgy in the people in the pews because they were members of the mystical body, and what Christ does is offers the mystical body to God. Yeah. And so you can either say no to that or yes. And so they, they want they wanted people to say, yes, I offer myself to God through Christ because if I give myself over as a victim, God will take that and make me resurrected. So that's active particip participation. And so anything that would be in the way of that, you know, a 200-foot-long 200 200 church with 100 rows, you know, 50, 70 rows of pews, 
makes it kind of hard to know how you're doing that, or if there's a column in the way, or if the sound system isn't good. So the original liturgical innovators didn't want big concrete churches necessarily. What they wanted was people to see and hear and have the primary things be primary. Somehow that became liturgy is the, the, the fun meal between friends, you know, let us like break bread together on our knees, you know, that song. Yeah. Um, there's a really terrible song, and it starts out here in this place, dirt for a floor. It's about, it's about the church building. It's a Catholic hymn. Here in this place, dirt for a floor. Nobody has dirt for a floor in their church. It's just <laughs> oh the stupidest, false, romantic theology of burlap and simplicity, and we're just little people in a hut, you know, doing yeah. our authentic thing. High theology was considered inauthentic. Right? Mm. Low theology was considered authentic. Burlap was authentic. Terracotta was authentic. Marble was triumphalist of the past and not of the, of the day. Um, and so we're in many ways living in that thing that I have to have feelings of inclusion, of welcome, mm. uh, gathering around the table of the Lord and offering you know, my story. And so it's really about me and my expressing of my feelings. Yeah. That's not really the theology of Vatican II, though. And so, but if that's your operative theology, that's the church you're going to ask for. And you hear the older folks that have perished sometimes when the, you know, the young millennials come in and they want marble and statues and icons. And yeah. Like, but don't you know this is about our, our feeling comfortable and welcoming? You know, this is how we express who we are. It's like you express who you are by doing what God wants, which is yeah. <laughs> I'm a person who's not God and I'm letting God make me into him. Not God should start looking like me when I tell him who I am. Um, so there's a little bit back and forth that way. So theology turns into architecture if people know what they're doing. Yeah, it's almost like at that time... Theology's bad, their architecture's bad. <laughs> it's almost like at that time, there, there was a, something similar to what's going on right now, which like the, you could say the current um, like struggle, like the poison in the church is you know, overlaying political uh, division onto the church and using those terms and even those, those ways of seeing each other and our, our, our neighbor in purely political terms, it's sort of like it happened back then too. And the people who were, you know, the the flower children who were like reacting against the establishment of like, you know, all that was conservative, um, that was overlaid back onto the architectural representation. So you needed to have, in order to be part of the people, you needed to not be part of the establishment. And now we're swinging back the other direction. Yeah. Right. And there were some genuine problems before the Second Vatican Council that the council was called to actually address. Yeah. And so, you know, you see some of these 19th century churches and they'll have like five altars in the sanctuary, you know. Right. And mm. it's like, well, if the altar is Christ and there's one Christ standing amidst his people, why are there five Christs here? Right? So they're like, let's mm. focus on the essential. Right. Well, that got watered down and watered down to Christ is your buddy and the altar is the table of your fellowship. You know what? That's not Catholic theology. Christ yeah. is your buddy in one sense, but he's God. <laughs> he has the power to send you to hell or not. Mm -hmm. And so you want to be in right relationship with him, which is not the 1940s, like God's ready to fry you, scary Jesus. On the other hand, he's not just a teddy bear either. So there's this thing, there's balance between the almighty God who is outside yeah. of space and time is at the right hand of the Father, who's the eschatological Christ, the solemn judge of all eternity, nonetheless, who wants you to be like him and will love you into his existence. It's not the same as a teddy bear. It's not just a warm fuzzy. It's a guy who loves you, like a parent, right? Your parent, as a parent, you don't let your kids do whatever they want. You love them into full humanity of the best you can. You teach sure. them, this is right behavior, this is wrong behavior. Do you have to have a timeout, right? If you just say, well, I'm going to let him do whatever he wants, he's going to go off the rails. Yeah, that's not love, and, right? Right, that balance between discipline and love isn't just, I come and tell dad what I want all the time, and he says yes. Right? So let's find balance. And so architecture has to have that balance between being warm, 
welcoming and home-like in the deep sense, right? The house of the Lord is the temple. The house of the Lord is all of creation. On the other hand, if it's so scary, dark, moody, and unpleasant that you say, I'm not welcome here, that's not good either. So how do you find that in between? Mm. The solemnity and the grandeur of heaven and the welcoming notion. So what I say is that you're welcomed into the palace of the king, right? So the the church is the palace of the king, and he's got a chair for you in the palace. Turning it into your backyard, you know, kids' um, clubhouse isn't going to make it the palace of the king. All it does is diminish God and diminish you. (laughs) So (laughs) God's palace, and nonetheless, you're welcome to be there. Yeah, yeah, you know it's it's been interesting for me. It, it and in fact, when I was in college, I, I would never think that I would be saying things like this. But now going to liturgies in which the church is beautiful and the liturgy is beautiful, you see how the two marry and and just show you so much more fully what is happening in the mass. Yeah, and when yeah. you then go to a church that is not, let's say, you still have a beautiful liturgy, but maybe the church isn't beautiful. Or the church is beautiful, but the liturgy is not as nice, or whatever. Um, you you miss something. There's a longing that that is there uh, that you you just kind of don't want to go back yeah. from. So it's amazing yeah. when all of it comes together. When the music is amazing, when the vestments are beautiful, when the church is beautiful, you you get this sense that this is how it's supposed to be. Yeah, you know yeah. when it's true. Like I, if you I went found to a restaurant, oh, what oh, say? If you went to a restaurant and the food was delicious, but it smelled like sewage, you wouldn't be like, oh, this is great, right? Yeah. <laughs> you want it to sound good, look good, smell good, taste good. So yeah. all of those things together contribute to the experience of, of dining there. So every sense is encountered. Or the, sense, the five senses are encountering things of heaven uh, church-wise, and one of them will diminish and distract if it's not as good as the other one. Yeah. I recently went to a, a liturgy where there was a lot of incense, and I, I left that liturgy. Uh, that mass with the the distinct impression that there's no such thing as too much incense. <laughs> and you, like, pro- you probably smelled like incense when you left. Yeah. Right? You well, were carrying the sweet smell of heaven with you. I've heard of it described as a, like it's a veiling of the mystery and it's, you know, it, it's doing a lot of things symbolically uh, that I had heard described before, but I'd never experienced it until that time. And whenever I saw it happening, I was like, oh, like I spend all day designing churches and like thinking about spaces like this and like, you know, furnishings and all this sort of stuff. But I had never actually seen it and smelt it and been there. And then when I, uh, when I experienced it, it was just, it's a different sort of thing altogether. It's categorically different. So. Right. And here, here's the essential thing when, it, when you're talking about beauty. And I learned this from Thomas Aquinas, particularly some of Jacques Maritain's writings on Aquinas and Umberto Eco and others, that the definition of beauty is when a thing reveals its ontological reality. So... It's called the ontological flash or the eschatological flash. So matter looks like matter. It just looks like a table. Or that matter is chosen, designed, and worked in a way that it reveals something more than itself. In other words, the inner logic of its reality that's usually only knowable through the mind, and mostly the mind of God, is somehow mediated through that earthly thing. So whether it's the incense or an altar or a church or a stained glass window or a statue, it can just look like a mannequin, right, a statue. Or somehow it can become the bearer of the divinized, perfected, glorified face of a saint. And what's the difference? <laughs> it's very hard to do that. So the artist has to know what that glorified face of a saint looks like yeah. and then has to have this, the capacity to render that in materiality. But if they don't know that beauty is the revelation of the nature of a thing and they substitute some other theory, political, historical, ideological, whatever, then they're going to make something other than the revelation of the nature of the thing. So the music has an ontological category liturgically, right? What does the angels and saints singing around the throne of God look like? I mean, sound like. 
What does the face of God look like? What does the heaven smell like? Who's there? What's there? What's it like? What's his category? And if you just say, well, it's a factory that we pray in because that's the only material and stuff true to our age, then you've actually missed the boat ontologically and therefore missed the boat in terms of uh, beauty. So beauty is the revelation of ontology, which means you have to know what it is. Which means you have to know what's true about it. And then when you encounter it, you encounter the good. When you encounter the good, you become good. <laughs> hey, how about that, right? <laughs> God, God wants to make you God by encountering God. That's like putting yourself in the microwave. If you want to get hot, you've got to get in the microwave. And so... In a sense, a church building is a big theological microwave. When you get in there, if it doesn't make you holier, it doesn't teach you about your own reality in relation to God, then it's not boiling the water of you. It's not making you divine. It's not pouring God's divine energy into you. And that's just a missed opportunity to make better Christians. Yeah. And I think that's why people come to churches, that even when they don't believe in the Christian stuff, because there's something about it. They're picking up the energy of, of the room. Just like when a Christian visits you know, Thailand and you go to all those beautiful... Um, Buddhist shrines, and you see all the gold mosaic all over everything. You think, wow, this is really cool. I don't know what it is, but boy, this is cool. But that's the beginning because beauty right. attracts you. And the next question is, what is that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you love pointing microwave. fingers and saying, do this or go to hell, that's not that great. Here's some beautiful thing. People come up to you and say, what is that? And then you say, oh, here's a brochure. And then they're reading about the truth of the thing. And then hopefully they find it convincing and then they go live that as well, you know, that reality. And so that's how beauty leads to truth. Truth leads to goodness. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I wanted to ask about um, the reform of the reform. You know, when mm-hmm. Pope Benedict was was Pope, he uh, he kind of started this idea, this wave of the reform of the reform, which you could almost say culminated with the new language that came out, Advent, however long ago that was now. Mm-hmm. And uh, and obviously the language was much improved from what it was before. You're talking about um, the translation of the new missile. Right, right the Correct. translation of the new missile. But it seems like it, it kind of stalled out a little bit, at least here in our diocese. I haven't heard much more about the reform of the reform. It seems like maybe we've gotten to a place where we're kind of content with where the liturgy is. So I guess I was curious because, for example, I feel like there are still things to recover about the way the liturgy was celebrated pre-Vatican II that reveal what is happening at the Mass. Mm, a simple yeah. example would just be, you know, the, the priest facing ad orientum, which is, in, in my opinion, a very clear and effective way to show that it is a sacrifice being offered on behalf of the people. So I guess if you could just talk about a little bit about the reform of the reform, is it over, or, or kind of what, what your thoughts are on that? Well, reform of the reform has a actually precise definition, so there's lots of ways to talk about improving liturgical quality, but reform of the reform, by definition, means literally changing the books, which the church's liturgical books. So either the norms are different, the rubrics are different, or the actual words are different, or the placement of things. So Pope Benedict talked about moving the sign of peace maybe earlier in the Mass at one point. And that's an actual reform of the book. Yeah. Um, that's different than saying we're going to do it in Latin or whatever. Right. Um, so the, the question, you know, in my mind is how do you make the liturgy more knowable for its own nature? So some people like the idea of ad orientum because it looks Tridentine. Right? Well, that's not really a theology. That's a right. chronology. It's a, nostalgia is a chronological issue, but usually there's a theology involved. I think the only argument for something like ad orientum is the nature of the liturgy itself. So the liturgy of the word is primarily directed to the people. Right? My, my logic line is look at the pe- person you're talking to. Yeah. Right? So right. when the priest talks to the people, yeah. he looks at yeah, the yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, totally. When the readings are <laughs> proclaimed, they're proclaimed to the people. Yeah. But who is the priest talking to in the Eucharistic prayer? 
for the most part, it's a prayer of Christ to the Father. The Father, right. right. Yeah. So that, that's why people and priests together who are forming the mystical body are not talking to each other. The head is not saying the prayer to the body. The head and the body together are saying the prayer to God the Father. So this, this to me is the only theological logic for Adorantum liturgy, and it grows out of the nature of the liturgy itself. And so to me, again, old stuff, sometimes good, sometimes bad, but more importantly, what's the nature of the liturgy and what you're doing? Is it growing from that reality? And, you know, these things come in phases, right? So certain popes accent certain things, and obviously it's not a major priority for Pope Francis. Right. Um, and so, you know, when the next pope comes, whenever that is, we'll see what that pope's priority is. Um, but, you know, what's very interesting, you know, what you made me think of, um, in Chicago we have a religious community called the, the Canons Regular of St. John Cantius. Oh, right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And they celebrate the extraordinary form quite commonly, but their principal mass is an ad orientum Latin Novus Ordo mass. So the current yeah. missile, sometimes English, sometimes Latin, at the high altar of their big old church uh, with servers and Catholic and surplus and the priests wear berettas and they have incense and everything. If it's in Latin, you probably wouldn't even know that it's not <laughs> right. extraordinary form, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and it shows a real continuity between the old and the new. Even when it's in English, you're like, wow, you know. I understand the collect. I understand the preface, you know, the yeah, changing of parts of the mass. But at the same time, I don't feel like they're doing something irreverent. It's extremely reverent. And they yeah, bring right. in Gregorian chant and lovely music. And it just shows that the current missal can be celebrated beautifully without reforming it. In many sure. ways, the Ars Celebrandi are the choices that they make on the spot. Either bring out the riches of the missal or they, they hide them. Right. And I guess it, there's nothing stopping a priest from celebrating ad orientum, um, right? Well, it's a permitted option, but you know, the, each bishop has permission in his diocese sure. to allow or not allow <laughs> permitted yeah. options. So yeah. you know, it's a it's a charged politically charged thing for a lot of people. Why are you turning your back on us? Right. But see, that just shows that they don't know who who the Eucharistic prayer is said to. This was the great insights of Vatican II. They said, "Hey, people in the pews, because you are baptized, you're a priest too, and you get to offer the same offering as a layperson that the priest is offering." You know, so it's appropriate to state in life. Yeah. Priests and people together offer themselves as Christ and therefore as victims and therefore glorification. If you don't do that, you're just going through the motions. And so actually, Adorantum is in many ways an outgrowth of the Vatican II theology that people think it's the enemy of Vatican II theology. <laughs> right, yeah, that, that's funny. No, that's and Pope true. Benedict turned it around, you know what they call the Benedictine option with the six candles and the cross. Oh yeah, I've seen that. See, yeah. it's mass toward the people, versus problem, but it's not mass to the people. Right? So basically, take the, the old high altar and turn it around so they can see but it's still not said to the people. It's still said to the Father right. by the priests and people together. Yeah, that's very cool. <laughs> well, I, I yeah. wanted to just follow up a little bit on that. And for me, and again, it's funny because in college, I mean, I went to a low mass once and I was so scared off by it that I like, never wanted to come back. Mm. And now I've been, I've been kind of coming around. I don't go to an extraordinary form mass, but I occasionally will go. There's, there's a parish here in Houston that has the, all the minor feasts are celebrated in the extraordinary form. And so I, I like to go, I like to expose my kids to it and just say, hey, like this is, you know, kind of the mass of, of the church through the ages. But um, we've been going to an ordinariate parish. Mm -hmm. And to me, the ordinary is, is an interesting mix in, in a way, uh, taking the best of, of the pre-Vatican you know, Vatican II mass and the best of, of the Novus Ordo and kind of marrying them. It's been very interesting. And what I've seen—they don't—they don't like to be called that, though. They're not the extraordinary form in English. They're very clear. Yeah, they're, they're not. Their own particular they're not. tradition, you know, centuries old from England and everything. 
Yes. But what you're saying is right, right? It's in many ways, the, yeah. the, Reform the idea is that the Reformation had right, which is that the people should understand the words of the liturgy, or at least yeah. the ones that pertain to them, yeah. was a good insight, and it took the church a long time to, to get around to that. Mm -hmm. But what, what I've kind of noticed from, because I celebrate at, at Orientum, is that um, when, when the priest is facing you, you have a hard time not seeing him as, well, that's Father Joe or whatever, you know, because you see his face and you see his yeah. expression. But when they're turning with the people towards the altar, in some ways it's easier to see that he is in persona Christi, you know, that it's almost like Father Joe is being, is being consumed or consumed into the liturgy and celebrating with the people and offering a sacrifice. So that's just been some, kind of a revelation to me that it's hit me. Right. Think of the, uh, I, I sometimes think that the author of The Wizard of Oz must have known the book of Revelation, right? Because there's the yellow brick road, and then there's the Emerald City at the end. But they have a forward movement towards something, right? So the, the understanding of Catholic liturgy is Christ is coming toward us in terms yeah. of the second yeah. coming. But we're also going toward him. That's why we're the, past, the um, Pilgrim Church. And so the notion that we actually always have this look toward the East, you know, toward Christ who's resurrected, yeah. who's coming toward us, yeah. is part of the nature of the liturgy itself. And, you know, Cardinal Ratzinger, of course, is a great proponent or kind of the proponent of Adorantum liturgy. He says there's the danger of the self-enclosed circle, which is the priest talks to us, we talk to the priest, and right. nobody's looking toward the yeah. eschaton and Christ coming yeah. toward us anymore. We forget that we're a pilgrim and we stop and say, let's celebrate ourselves, let's tell our story. Now, it doesn't have to, right? You can have versus popum liturgy, which has an eschatological orientation, but I think it's harder and it takes a lot more intentionality. You could be totally indifferent at an auto-oriented liturgy, too. So sure. the direction of liturgy is not going to make everything change, but the external signs either make it more knowable or less knowable, and you know, different periods of time to decide which one serves their, their needs best. Right. Yeah. True. Uh, High-level question. Are there enough architects out there to fit the amount of work of this type that needs to be done, based on what uh, you know? You mean our beautiful churches? Yes. They're, they're, well, you know, there are probably enough architects... But I don't know that there are enough theologically trained architects who understand what Catholic liturgy is, who understand mm -hmm. traditional architecture and can practice it well. Yeah. So th there's a small group of people that do traditional design in what yeah. I call a credible yeah. way, as opposed to what I call strip mall classicism, uh, where they sprinkle <laughs> columns around. Yeah. And, um, and so the big problem now, in, at least in my mind, very few people outside of you know, few cathedrals out west want the architect's church anymore nobody wants the big concrete box yeah, yeah but what they the big problem is they get the local architect who's pretty good at you know stores and maybe not even that great at stores and say give us a classical building and they oh sure and they look at a few buildings they don't know how they yeah. don't understand the proportions sure. of a column to a base and they make a column with you know four times the diameter of it four times as high as its diameter which is yeah, yeah. you know it's a four foot tall person you know instead of a six foot or seven or eight or whatever mm -hmm. so how to get the average architect up to the level of theological and architectural literacy that the, that the, the field is demanding that's the real challenge especially yeah. when you have um, an architectural profession that doesn't want people to know this you they keep architects intentionally ignorant of the thing that the market is demanding i mean how obviously wrong is that yeah that's and so yeah. there are some schools that give you a little leeway you know yale was pretty tradition friendly for a while and now cua has started a classical track and notre dame is famous for it and there have been a few other schools that are teaching a bit of it here and there judson university here in UCLA, mm -hmm. and benedictine college in kansas has a, some kind of partly classical curriculum now in their new architecture program um, but that's what we need. We need clients who know 
and we need architects who know, and then they can work together and see what they like. Yeah. So, and if so, that's the case, they'll put me out of a job, which is what normally happens anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody yeah. asked me, yeah, I say, yeah. if you hire this architect, you don't need me anymore, and that's usually uh, the case. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think uh, to, to close out, we, we want to ask one more question. And it's, could you describe an experience of beauty that just revealed God to you in a very powerful way? You know, it could be liturgy, it could be, you know, in nature, just some experience you've had that just really impacted you and revealed God. Well, one that stands out in my memory was when I was in college. And I had been at a regular sort of suburban church, Long Island, where I grew up. And Nothing special about it, liturgically. Nothing wild either, but it was just, you know, sort of a kind of Catholic minimal pragmatism. And then I was um, at Yale as an undergrad in the St. Mary's Church that was run by the Dominicans. It's sort of a high church church. And I'd never seen high church anything. I'd never heard a choir singing Palestrina. I'd never seen these beautiful vestments made by Watson Company in England. Mm. That's Pugin's Pugin's company. And... um, and then I, they asked me, would I be an altar server? And I had never done that before, ever. Wow. Yeah. I just didn't. And even though I went to church every week, I was not really involved. And then I was asked to be the, you know, hold the boat, right, with the incense in it, and follow the thoroughfare. And then, you know, everybody bowed from one to the next. So you give it to the priest, and you bow, and they bow back, and it's elegant movement and silent. You're wearing a, an alb that fits you. And, and then after communion, you're kneeling there, and then the choir was singing some... Oh, I don't know, High Renaissance polyphony. I don't know if it was Palestrina or Victoria or one of those things. And I remember just smelling incense, eyes closed, on my knees, something really important, thinking about what I just received in the Eucharist and hearing this sound come all around me. It was like that incense for the ears. And everything was just delightful. I'm like, oh, I don't know what this feeling is, but it's not regular old me. <laughs> <laughs> Something happened, either I was carried off or it came to me or whatever it was. There was a meeting of the earthly and the divine. And I, even though that was 20-something years ago, uh, I remember that moment. And it's hard to relive those moments, but then once you know that moment, it's hard to go back. It's like being out of Plato's cave. <laughs> you've only, it is. You've yeah. seen the shadows. The shadows the different. Yeah. And it's hard to go back to the shadows once you've seen the real thing. Totally. All right, yeah. Dennis. Well, thank you for your time. We really appreciate yeah, you, know, you taking nice. so much time for us. We, yeah, nice to have a long, meaty discussion like this, too, instead of a few five-second sound bites. It's great. Yeah, no, <laughs> we, we, we really like this, this format. It's, it's fun. But yeah. anyways, thanks again. We really okay. enjoyed it. Yeah, and, thanks. Uh, I'll do it anytime. Call back. All right. Anytime you want. We'll, we'll do. We'll take you up on it. Thanks. <laughs> okay, great. All right, take care, Dennis. Bye-bye. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening. The best way to enjoy the podcast is to pull up the accompanying blog post for the episode at beautyevernew.com. There you will find show notes, guest information, helpful visual aids, and more. To continue the conversation, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and let us know how you're experiencing beauty in your churches and communities.